This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The rise of China has so-called economic nationalists all a Twitter, but many of the concerns over China's economic growth wrongly consider trade as win-lose rather than win-win. A new Cato policy analysis out today, Responsible Stakeholders, Why the United States Should Welcome China's Economic Leadership, is by Colin Grabo. It discusses the rise of China and the appropriate U.S. responses. The current president uh, has decided to withdraw the United States from the TPP. How does that change China's role with respect to international trade? I think the surprising answer to that is that China is going to prove to be a positive role for international trade in the Asia-Pacific realm. It's undertaken a number of initiatives that I think will boost uh, trade, free trade, and expanded trade more generally. Uh, That takes the form of the RCEP, which is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It includes 16 different countries, uh, as well as a number of their infrastructure initiatives, such as the One Belt, One Road initiative, as well as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, which started a few years ago. So if you're standing aside, you're not an American, you're not uh, Chinese, you're standing aside looking at whether or not the U.S., Uh, should participate in the TPP on balance? Would you say that the U.S. withdrawal from the TPP actually enhanced free trade or was it a net negative for free trade? It was absolutely a net negative for free trade. Uh, One of the big draws of the Trans-Pacific Partnership was access to the U.S. market. And when you remove the United States from the equation, that's almost, I believe, some 40-something percent of the Trans-Pacific Partnership of the collective GDP. And without that allure, without that prize, uh, countries are not willing to give as much ground on reducing their trade barriers without that potential payoff uh, with the U.S. out of the game. So it's a loss for everybody. So let's talk about the Regional um, Comprehensive Economic Partnership. What is that and what countries are involved? Sure. So the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership is a trade agreement that is being negotiated between the countries of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which are 10 countries, and uh, and six other countries, uh, which includes um, China, Japan, uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, I believe. It's 16 countries in total. And this, this agreement, uh, it's not as far-reaching as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The liberalization does not go as far, unfortunately, but it still is a very real step in the direction of free trade uh, in the Asia-Pacific region with a payoff that's been estimated by the Asian Development Bank in the region of $220 billion over 10 years, I believe. All right. So uh, that group, uh, the RCEP, as you noted, the fact that the U.S. is out of TPP, China gets this opportunity to sort of reshape uh, trade, at least within that region. What should the U.S. do now in order to uh, make that productive for the United States? Sure. So RCEP is a step forward, but it's not a big enough step forward. So what the United States ideally would do would be to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That unfortunately doesn't look like it's going to happen, at least under the Trump administration at least under this president. Um, What the U.S. should do as a second best solution is reach out to some of the uh, countries that we were part of the TPP, that are part of the TPP, and negotiate bilateral agreements with the Trump, which the Trump administration has indicated uh, a willingness to do. Uh, Primarily, they should reach out to Japan and try to get a bilateral 
trade deal done with them, as well as Vietnam. Uh, as far as the RCEP, once that is concluded, we should use that uh, as a starting point uh, to build on towards expanded free trade. I think a lot of concern is that the RCEP is writing the rules of the road. Well, it is, but there's no reason to think that those have to be the final rules of the road and that those can't be, become a starting point for future negotiations to further improve those rules of the road and, and push for further liberalization. Will rules that the RCEP puts together uh, this group of Asia-Pacific uh, countries, will the rules that that group puts together, will they be cognizant of the fact that there are these bilateral trade agreements forthcoming? The, what's, what's worth noting is that the RCEP countries, there are there's overlap between some of the participants in RCEP as well as the TPP. For example, Japan is a participant in both, as is Australia, as is a few other countries. And I think there's going to, because of that, there's going to be uh, an interest among those countries for pushing for um, greater liberalization and using any final RCEP uh, agreement as a starting point to then build further and, and not regard RCEP as a, as a conclusion to free trade efforts in, in the Asia-Pacific. You say that uh, any view of China, the China-U.S. trading relationship as zero sum is likely to be... Uh, counterproductive. Yes. What does that zero-sum thinking produce when it comes to policy sure. that would be so counterproductive? Sure. I think uh, zero-sum mentality uh, holds that whenever China wins, it means the U.S. loses. And when you get engaged in that kind of thinking, it means that when China pushes ahead with, for example, efforts like RCEP to expand free trade, there's, I think, an inclination on the part of some in the U.S. to regard that as a threat because if, if, if China is profiting from that, then by definition, that's bad for the U.S. When, again, we need to step back and realize that expanded free trade is always good, even when it comes from countries that we don't necessarily see eye to eye with on a lot of issues. Um, I, I think we just have to keep in mind that the U.S.-China bilateral relationship is arguably um, the most important economic bi bilateral relationship in the world today. And we need to stay away from anything that could um, raise unnecessary suspicions and and, and spark a, a trade war between the two sides. What do you? What would be the? What might foment a trade war, and uh, what might that look like uh, a year or so after it begins? Sure. Uh, the biggest risk right now is that we have a president who reportedly has stated when it comes to China that I want tariffs, bring me some tariffs. Uh, the Chinese have already made plain that if Trump goes down that route, they will be forced to retaliate uh, with tariffs of their own. Uh, and they will do so in sectors that are politically sensitive, uh, that are designed to, to raise a lot of ire in the United States. And, and is, is Trump the kind of president that will then step back and reevaluate or will he further ratchet up tensions? Unfortunately, I think it might be the latter. Where might uh, your average consumer see the costs of a trade war? I'm thinking of rare metals and electronics being uh, two areas where that might be might cause problems. But where would the average consumer see something uh, bothersome? That's a great question. Uh, China makes so much of what the U.S. Uh, consumer consumes, purchases. Um, it, it runs the gamut. Uh, you know, we talk about. Apple coming out with their new iPhone 10 and everyone is uh, raise their eyebrows over the $1,000 price. Well, guess how much that 
iPhone would cost if it wasn't uh, assembled in China. Uh, we definitely feel that in our pocketbooks. So I, I really think it, it would run the gamut. What are some populist pro-trade uh, policies that the United States could implement that would uh, that would have broad support, but also be uh, support an expanded relationship between the U.S. and China and these other Asia-Pacific countries that are a part of the TPP? The encouraging news is that if you look at recent opinion polling, Americans do still express uh, a favorability towards free trade. Uh, the concept of it. I think we need to do a better job of marketing it. I don't think that there was a lot wrong with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It could have been improved, yes. But we need to realize the payoffs from this. Uh, opening up countries like Japan, for example, to U.S. agricultural exports, that's a big win. Um, and as well as gaining uh, increased access to cheaper imports, which not only benefit U.S. consumers, but are you know half of Roughly half of all imports are used as an input for goods which are then re-exported. Um, so I, I think there's already a lot of wins to be had and we need to do a better job of, of marketing that and realizing that and making the argument for it. At a conceptual level, it is at least bothersome to me that trade is viewed as something where uh, Americans are for the most part helpless and are – uh, tr at the sort of at the whim of other countries deciding whether or not to quote unquote dump their cheap goods into America and uh, eliminate American jobs. Can you give some people comfort about what how trade actually works? Sure. I think a great example is if you look at NAFTA, which is currently in the early stages of a re renegotiation. Uh, Trump loves to talk about NAFTA being the worst free trade deal out there, bashes it repeatedly. What is lost or underappreciated is the fact that when it came to negotiating NAFTA and introducing Mexico uh, into the bilateral U.S.-Canada agreement, which then became NAFTA, Mexico cut its tariffs much more than the United States did. The average U.S. tariff uh, going into NAFTA was somewhere around 3.5%. Mexico was in the range of 7.5%. Why did Mexico cut their tariffs so deeply? It's because of the allure of the U.S. market and the possibility of exporting to the U.S. So we win because the other side cut their tariffs more, which gives us access to their market, and U.S. consumers benefit uh, from cheaper uh, goods imported from Mexico and, and, and Canada and other countries. Uh, Steve Bannon, who uh, was until very recently a member of the White House uh, advisory team, he uh, really is pushing this economic nationalism. Is there anything positive that you can say about the, the, the idea or some of the tenets of economic nationalism that he's promoting? Uh, unfortunately, there is not. I think economic nationalism is about paying more and getting less. It subscribes to the misguided notion that everything should be made by Americans, which as we know from, you know, Economic Basics 101, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, uh, the theory of comparative advantage, that is not correct. We should focus our energies on those things which we can do best and let other countries focus on those things which we cannot. Uh, it's much better for the United States to design iPhones rather than make or assemble iPhones. Colin Grabo is author of Responsible Stakeholders, Why the United States Should Welcome China's Economic Leadership. is available now at Cato.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. 
and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.